talking about it. This is Hamilton Today with Scott Thompson on 900 CHML. Hey, it's Hamilton Today. I'm Curtis Thompson, Scott's son. Will Weber is on the board. Willerskin books the guests. In the newsroom, Dinah Weeks and Dave Woodard. With gas prices soaring up and no help in sight from the Prime Minister, the best chance to save the world with renewable energy may be harnessing the hot air coming from this show. Hey! hey, 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 hey. Thompson! What's that? What's that? What are you talking about there? Good afternoon. It is Hamilton Today. I'm Scott Thompson. Welcome aboard. Will Weber is on the board. Lots going on today. Uh, man, new numbers out for inflation, 6.8% now. And that is a three-decade high. But as uh, you go out and go to the grocery store and and uh, drive around, you certainly don't need me to uh, to handle that. Uh, and, oh, uh, I think we got a clip of this, but uh, Dan McTagg saying that uh, gas prices are going to fall, uh, but then head back up before uh, the long weekend. Will, you got that clip of Dan and what he, he was predicting on the, uh, on the prices? Listen. Supply is the issue here, and it's not just Russia invading Ukraine. This is a problem that has been a long time coming and developing, in particular, given the lack of investment in uh, critical infrastructure to produce uh, fossil fuels and, of course, the campaign, the green campaign, to try to stifle it. Of course, carbon taxes don't help either. Oh, I thought that was the one in how much the prices were going up. Uh, I believe they're uh, up three cents, or sorry, down three cents tonight and up two cents uh, by the weekend. So, you know, up and down, up and down, up and down we go. So, uh, again, uh, if you want to wait, you might want to fill up just prior to the long weekend. It's kind of like, uh, like gambling in Vegas, isn't it? Uh, also, the Royals are uh, in Ottawa. They were in uh, Newfoundland yesterday, and uh, and right now they're watching the musical Ride, which is pretty cool. We haven't seen that in uh, over two years since the uh, global pandemic. So this is uh, not only a, a visit for uh, for Prince Charles and uh, Camille, it's also the first time I believe the uh, RCMP musical ride has been out since uh, COVID. So they're watching that uh, uh, right now. And uh, interesting, earlier on today, w- there were shots of them in a um, in a cathedral, a Ukraine cathedral in Ottawa. And as I'm watching this visit too, uh, the masks are virtually gone. You don't really see anybody in masks. Uh, at uh, especially in the cathedral, I thought you might uh, with around uh, the prince and such, but uh, not the case. And on that note, mass uh, at uh, masking at McMaster University is now no longer mandatory. So there's a, a great sign as uh, we slowly move into summer and uh, out of what has been uh, the dark side of the latter two years. So uh, that's pretty much it that's going on. Uh, the uh, the campaign trail is is still ablazing with uh, leaders going off in all directions. We'll touch on that uh, coming up a little later on in the show. Another jam-packed one for you, uh, Alberta Premier Jason Kenney appearing before a U.S. Senate committee to, uh, again, talk about Alberta oil. And it was interesting even watching 
um, our, our federal in- energy minister talking about building uh, more natural gas uh, off the East Coast. So my goodness, the the attitude is changing here, uh, or certainly this the discussion is being had uh, that you know this is going to take a mixed bag of energy, whether it's renewable or fossil fuel, and you just can't shut off the tap before you have uh, you've got alternate alternatives in place, which is what's happened. We've canceled the pretty much canceled the Canadian energy industry when we should be self-sufficient at this time. We're going to talk about that coming up uh, in our first break. Also, lots of chatter about UFOs. What's with this? Is it just because we're coming out of COVID and we're all a little wacko? Uh, we're all a little, uh, you know, cabin fever, a little uh, starstruck, a little, what is that? What is that? You know, we haven't been out in a long time. So anyway, uh, we're going to have the conversation with Paul Delaney about UFOs again. And uh, he, he'll always point out that UFOs mean identified flying object. Uh, that doesn't necessarily means that it necessarily means that it's from another galaxy or anything like that. So we're going to talk about that coming up a little later on as well. And uh, I'm not sure why I stumbled on this, but 10 years ago, uh, we lost uh, the first lady of disco. Donna Summer uh, had an incredible career. We're going to talk with El- uh, Eric Elper about her coming up a little later on in the hour as well. And I don't know if you've been to the airport lately, but certainly you see a lot of it on social media. The backlogs just continue. And, you know, much like a lot of the stuff, everybody just assumes this is happening everywhere. Oh, it's all about the COVID and, you know, short staffed and all that. Well, it only seems to be happening here. Uh, in at Toronto Airport. It doesn't seem to be happening in the U.S. and, you know, perhaps certainly not at, at the other airports through uh, throughout Canada. Now, obviously, uh, Canada, or sorry, Toronto is a, a major, major airport. But that being said, uh, come on, you could have seen this stuff happening, coming, that the sooner or later uh, the airline industry was going to bounce back, and it, it certainly has at that. So we're going to try to get to the root of that problem and find out exactly why we're having this problem, but nobody else uh, seems to. Also, more chatter about Finland and Sweden coming up as uh, they're making plans to join NATO. And what is the fallout of that? It certainly looks like um, uh, many will support. I think Turkey's speaking out against this, but it'll be interesting to see where this goes and how, uh, you know, and how we progress with getting or how NATO progresses with getting uh, Finland and Sweden under their umbrella. And most importantly, what it means for the fallout of uh, the Russian invasion of Ukraine. Uh, as that uh, that conflict continues, the Russian invasion now, I believe, into day 83, day 83. And on that note, a vigil will be held tonight out in front of Hamilton City Hall in support and remembrance uh, for the victims of Russia's war in Ukraine. And we'll talk to the president of the Ukrainian Canadian Congress about that coming up a little later on today and the vigil that's uh, going out in front of Hamilton City Hall tonight. So. You know, uh, it, it continues to grind on and, and, and it looks, it looks as, um, even more and more every day, Putin gets painted into a corner and, uh, hopefully, uh, we can give someone an off ramp or someone a solution in order to simmer this whole situation down. We'll talk about that throughout the afternoon. I was saying to Will off air, what is it when, you know, uh, gas is, uh, over $2 a liter and, uh, ooh, it's going to go down two cents, uh, uh, tomorrow. And, and, and you can fill up and, and save that two cents just before the long weekend. And, and then, yeah, my goodness. 
uh it's uh it's like it's like playing roulette at uh at vegas it's it's just bizarre and now we've got alberta premier jason kenny appearing before a u.s senate committee uh again pitching uh alberta energy and and canadian energy let's bring in ian lee associate professor sprott school of business carleton university ian thanks for the time i hope you're well so, Jason Kenny uh, of Alberta, again, promoting uh, Canadian energy in the U.S. is, you know, we've talked about this before. We've talked about it since the whole situation in Ukraine uh, started with the Russian invasion. Is this discussion changing at all? Um, you've asked a very good question because I think that the uh, a word I like, uh, the zeitgeist, the culture, the political culture is in a state of flux. Um, if you listen to environmental leaders in the states, they haven't changed at all. Nothing's changed. You know, mm-hmm. still got to just no, no, no to pipelines and so forth. However, when you read op-eds by the uh, call it the military intelligence establishments, uh, foreign policy magazine, foreign affairs magazine, some of the um, associations that deal with national security, and the zeitgeist has changed completely. Uh, they, they argue that energy is now part of national security, and they're arguing we can't become dependent again on an, you know, a country like Russia or an Iran. So um, I, I think that there's an internal debate going on in Washington um, amongst different sections or groups within the U.S. government. And the environmentalists up until now have been holding the upper hand, but you've got Senator Joe uh, mention from, uh, who's the Democrat from West yeah. Virginia, who is, uh, very, very strongly supportive of more pipelines. So you've even got splits inside the Democratic Party between the moderate Democrats, centrist Democrats, and the, um, the hard left, uh, environmentalists. So I think the best way to answer it is too soon to say. It's in a state of flux. Uh, considering Canada's natural resources, should we be self-sufficient? Um, Yes. <laughs> I, I, I'm not, I, I hesitated for a moment because I'm not somebody who preaches autarky, and autarky is the big fancy word for being completely, totally self-sufficient. Mm-hmm. Generally, countries that have been practiced autarky in everything, not just energy, but I mean in everything, tend to be extraordinarily poor. North Korea been, being exhibit A, you know, they don't trade with the outside world. And I'm certainly not advocating autarky in any sense where, you know, we say we're going to make everything in Canada and grow all our food in Canada and make all our tractors and our computers because mm-hmm. it's just not credible. You know, we're, it's, uh, the, yeah. the products supply chains are far too complex. But with energy, it is a unique situation. That is to say, it's the backbone of any economy. You cannot run any economy or household without energy unless people want to go back to the uh, days of candles and studying their books like Abraham Lincoln at night with a candle. And I don't think anyone's advocating that. And so uh, energy is unique. And secondly, we have an abundance. Uh, I've seen estimates of 200 years of reserves of oil and gas. So we are not like UK or, or uh, more accurately. And we could, be selling, we could be selling to them and, 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 cleaning up, and cleaning up the environment at the same time. Exactly. And there are new technologies that are being developed, uh, carbon capture, and, 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 you know, natural gas is much cleaner. We don't use coal, which is, of course, the dirtiest and filthiest of all the fossil fuels. And so I am one of those people. I agree with Jason Kenney uh, on this issue of energy, and there's others making the same argument. We could be helping uh, uh, reduce uh, uh, Europe's dependence 
on that uh, crazy man uh, in uh, running uh, Russia that thinks he can invade other countries. And uh, this will be a very good thing. We could help China get off coal. They're the number one emitter in the world. 30% of world GHG emissions are from one country called China, not because they're bad people, but because they use enormous amounts of coal. And coal is really, really, really dirty. So we could be shipping liquefied natural gas to clean up the world and contribute to a reduction in global warming. But there's a significant numbers in the environmental movement who are absolutely opposed to pipelines and to shipping cleaner natural gas to those countries that are heavy users of coal. Japan, South Korea, India, China are four of the, the worst offenders in the world, and they are very large emitters. We were talking about gasoline prices uh, over coming up to this long weekend. Everybody in Canada is talking about this from yeah. coast to coast because yeah. it's up there on that billboard as you drive by. Yeah. Uh, the Prime Minister is not talking about this. Yeah. How come? And, and does he have to address this sooner or I later? I think he does have to address it. He's ducking it because he knows how unbelievably uh, angry people are. Um, uh, and, uh, again, it's showing... Scott, and I've been saying this for two or three years, it shows two things. Energy, and I mean by that natural gas, oil, oil uh, gasoline, is not just another product, like buying a T-shirt at Loblaws or Walmart or wherever you buy your T-shirts. Uh, energy is absolutely essential, just like food. You can't say, oh, well, I lost my job or I'm kind of broke and the grocery bills are very high. I'll stop eating for six months. It's just not humanly possible for anybody. And likewise, we are the second largest country on planet Earth. We have the smallest, lowest density in the world, four people per square kilometer. We're a gigantically enormous country. And we are completely dependent on, on energy to move us and goods and services around. The country was built on a railroad, for goodness sake. And, and so it is not just another product in the, at the Canadian Tire. It is an absolute uh, tr- energy, gas, diesel, uh, heating is absolutely essential. People are just angrier than all get out. Or people with modest incomes are getting literally uh, are getting hurt uh, because of the choices they have to make, the trade-offs. And that's why he doesn't want to talk about it. And he has contributed, and he's not responsible for it, but he's contributed to it uh, by uh, the carbon tax, which has is, is pushed the prices up even higher than they would otherwise. I just got back very quickly from uh, Hilton Head, drove down and back for two weeks. And, and I priced it because there's a very nice converter on the website. You can punch in the U.S. price per gallon to get the Canadian price per liter. And they're paying 50 to 60 cents per liter Canadian dollar equivalent less per gallon, if you follow me, than we are. In other words, when you're comparing apples to apples to apples, and they pay 60 cents less a liter than we do, and it's all taxes because the price of oil is a world price. And uh, so people are saying, wait a minute. This is my existence. I, I take the kids, you know, I got to go grocery shopping and uh, I have to take the kids to soccer practice or take them to the doctor or whatever. And, and uh, these are essential, you know, and, and, you know, this is why people are so angry and why I think he's got to talk about it. I remember the huge debate on the GST and they said, oh my goodness, we can't put the GST on food. Food's essential. Well, we've got this tax, a de facto tax on food with the skyrocketing cost of inflation imposed driving groceries up, and included in that is a much higher energy cost because agriculture uses a lot of energy mm. to produce food. So we are taxing food. It's just it's a different, it's a disguised tax. 
Ian Lee with his associate professor, Sprott School of Business, Carleton University, talking about Canada's energy industry and why we are paying the prices we are. Ian, as always, thanks for the time. Be well. Thanks very much, Scott. Thank you. You're listening to the Hamilton Today podcast from 900 CHML. I don't know if you've noticed this, but it seems, uh, you know, if you keep abreast of the news and what's going on, uh, UFOs have, have, you know, again, become an issue, a topic. People are talking about UFOs, and there seems to be a a renewed interest in this. And uh, there was, I guess, some chatter about it in uh, recent uh, U.S. news about uh, the whole UFO phenomenon and and what they're discovering. So to sort of get an overview of all of this, let's bring in Paul Delaney, Professor Emeritus uh, Astronomy, York University, and with us now. Paul, thank you for the time. I hope you're well. I am indeed, Scott. Nice to be with you. Paul, we've talked for a lot uh, over the years on all kinds of space stuff and even on UFOs. And, and you know, you, you do readily admit UFOs are unidentified flying objects, but that doesn't necessarily mean they're aliens from another galaxy, does it? <laughs> no, it doesn't. Uh, and even with the, the new title, uh, Unidentified uh, Aerial Phenomena, same statement applies. Don't immediately think that we're talking about uh, you know, flying saucers and aliens. But you're right, there certainly has been a lot of renewed interest and underscored by you know, the, the congressional hearings that are south of the border that were taking place, well, that started on Tuesday and uh, by all accounts are going to be ongoing for quite some time. So tell us about these hearings. What's the objective here? I think the objective is really to try and... Uh, put a more serious spin on the investigation of UAPs, UFOs. For the longest period of time, anybody who said, I saw a UFO, immediately was sort of stigmatized a little bit because there have been so many reports over literally decades that were just preposterous. And as a consequence of you know, aliens coming down and taking my chickens and scaring my cows and doing unspeakable things to me. And so amidst all those sorts of reports, there have been a few nuggets of what was that object? And credible observers really could not identify what it was. Well, finally, there is now uh, an investigation coming forward that basically says we want to hear from everybody, credible witnesses in particular, to try and get to the bottom of that 1% to 5% of truly unidentified flying objects is this less about again what we were talking about at the beginning with aliens and such and more about especially with the technology in the world we live in about secret surveillance well that's exactly uh, uh, the correct interpretation i still am firmly of the view that we're not on the corner of the qew and pick your favorite intersection in the galaxy with respect to flying sources from extraterrestrials But a lot of the reports that are coming out over uh, very recent times really do suggest that there is activity by a variety of uh, military organizations, including, by the way, I'm sure the U.S., uh, trying to push the envelope of aircraft as well as spacecraft. And Mm -hmm. they are now being detected. They are being seen by credible observers. So I do think that there is this, shall I say, national defense aspect to it, but it really is trying to get to the bottom of who on planet Earth is actually experimenting with interesting designed aircraft. 
So, again, more about spycraft than UFOs, and as you said, could very much be a military uh, uh, issue or, or project of some sort, um, and then perhaps people are discovering it. Uh, you know, perhaps there's some sort of er- uh, experimentation going on with these drones or what have you, uh, and again, around a, uh, you know, a circle of defense, and someone finds out about it, someone sees it, or somehow they let the cat out of the bag. Is that possible? Oh, I, I think it's more than possible. It's, it, it's hard to keep aerial phenomena uh, a secret. Think about how yeah. many aircraft, the commercial aircraft, are flying these days with both you know, run-of-the-mill everyday pilots as well as the commercial aircraft. When you think about the number of uh, ships that are at sea, uh, being able to observe the night sky in very pristine conditions, when you think about the number of people who are trying to get out of the cities into the, uh, into the countryside, where, again, the skies are very pristine, there are just a lot of observers these days. Yeah. Uh, and the more credible observations that come forward, the stronger is the case being built that these are, in fact, some sort of terrestrial, whether or not it's surveillance or experimental, I mean, p- pick your verb there, uh, you know, there is something happening. And if you go back and look at Project Blue Book, uh, you know, th- this type of investigation has been ongoing on and off by various groups for 50 years. There's always been a small percentage of observations that really did defy rational explanations, be it of an astronomical nature or an aeronautical nature. So there's always been a few real observations that people needed to get to the bottom of, but we've not treated them very seriously until very recently. So is that leaving the door open uh, a slight crack for, okay, it could be an alien? I can't say it, 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 it's impossible because yeah. it is indeed possible. But to uh, me, as uh, we're talking about here, Paul, you know, you talked about the stigma of people saying that they've seen this thing. Well, maybe the stigma is associated with everybody assumes there's little green men on these things. And it's got, you know, maybe we'd help with a stigma if we said, no, no, uh, the people are maybe seeing real things, but it's not Martians in, in, in spacecraft. It's spying. It's technology and people and nations spying on each other. Or, or, or let's, let's just say it's terrestrial activity. I mean, you know, some of these uh, uh, sites that people are picking up may not be surveillance. They could truly be experimental aircraft of some description, yeah. not with necessarily nefarious um, uh, ends in mind. But it certainly is the association. When people hear UFO, I, I would guarantee their first reaction is little green men from Mars. That, that's yeah. just what we've been led to believe all the way from the Roswell incident in 1947. Yeah. Uh, so that's the stigma. And that's why credible observers tended not to come forward with more reliable types of information. Somebody would stand up and say, yes, I saw that UFO and it landed in my back 40 last night. Uh, and it had flashing <laughs> lights on it and so on and so forth. Yeah, those are not credible uh, observations. So, yes, the stigma is associated with UFO equals little green men or women. So um, will this this uh, inquiry that's going on about this uh, in the U.S., which Canada is now privy to, I understand, uh, will that explain this and say, hey, you know what, let's not, you know, assume that these are all Martians or whatever, that this is, you know, credible, it could be credible spying activity and we should be aware of these. Will that come out of this? I don't think we're going to get an answer to that anytime soon. You and I won't get the answer. But by uh, more credible observers coming forward and giving 
this investigation more information, it could well point the way for the U.S. to actually figure out more exactly who or what is you know, happening above us and around us. Whether or not they deem to tell you and me about that, mm. that's a whole other story. Uh, for, you know, if they figure out that it is, in fact, you know, the Russians or the Chinese, uh, they may not be too terribly uh, willing to tell us about that because the way they actually find out may be sort of a bit of a security leak on their side. Uh, so I'm, I'm not all that encouraged that we're going to get an answer but I am encouraged that there will be more credible information to analyze, and therefore the probability of getting to the bottom of it is now much higher than it has been probably for decades. Paul Delaney with us, Professor Emeritus, Astronomy, York University, talking about UFOs, which have come into the headlines again, and may not be necessarily Martians, but creative spying. Paul, as always, thank you for the time. Be well. Take care, Scott. When there's an issue, Scott is all in on getting to the heart of it. This is Hamilton Today with Scott Thompson. On Hamilton's News, today's talk. 900 CHML. Let's bring in Eric Alper, publicist and music commentator, and with us. Eric, thanks for the time. I hope you're well. I am good. You know, because of this, I am literally on the same block as Studio 54 in Manhattan, New York right now. I decided to take the trip down to New York in order to do this segment. Wow, that's incredible. Now that is dedication, Eric. That's why you are that's why you've got the success you have. But talk about that talk about that location and what it meant to this movement. It was it was everything. It was everything and it was the place to be and if you got in, it gave you that sense of cool and hipness. And you're right. It it, it bridged the gap between the old and the new and it also bridged the gap between the gay and lesbian community and the straight yeah. people. Because once disco went mainstream with Saturday Night Fever, it just seemed like every party needed to have um, needed to have disco music. And for DJs, it was a wonderful thing because you can play an 18-minute version of mm. "Love to Love You, Baby" or "I Feel Love" and go do you know cocaine or whatever else that you really <laughs> want to do, um, you know, or go to the bathroom for a long bathroom break. But you know, Studio 54 was the place to be in New York City, in the greatest city in the world for, for music and hotspots and entertainment. Man, you can so tell you are down there. Why are you there? I'm, I'm here as a post-Juno little break that I usually take myself out of, the, out of Canada for a couple of days and just chill out in some, somewhere else. Um, but yeah, we just happened to land literally on the same block. And I'm like, I think I'm going to stay here. But um, yeah, you know, Donna Summer should be bigger. And I think one of the reasons that she's not is she came from a Christian background. And she was very self-conscious of the fact that a lot of her most popular songs are about love and sex. Something that, you know, the, the Catholic Church didn't really like. Um, Heck, one of them was just moaning and groaning to a beat. Right, uh, <laughs> orgasms in that song, exactly. you know, so-called or whatever. So, you know, so I think that people knew that she was just a singer. And I mean the word just in a, in a broad sense of the term. It wasn't like she was Madonna living and breathing and eating all of the things that she was singing about. I think Donna Summer was a singer. And although she got her accolades being in the Rock Roll Hall of Fame, a year after she unfortunately passed away. Um, it, it, I think it's one of those things where if she was more into that scene, she would be the goddess I think that she deserves to be. Oh, that's interesting. So I know there was a Broadway play about this. Is there any talk of a biopic or is there even a story there? 
there's always talk of it. You know, when it opened up, on, when the Dawn of the Summer story opened up on Broadway, um, it, it shut down within the year. And I think part of it was um, it's really tough to have really upbeat disco songs on Broadway where it was really meant to be dancing. It wasn't meant to be kind of thought about or sung about. But there are um, touring productions around America that, that do that. And certainly the, the fact that we're, we're, that we're still talking about her you know, 30 years, 35 years after her biggest hits of those two songs and Bad Girls was all over MTV and Much Music and She Worked Hard for the Money was always in that. Um, you know, she crossed over so many things, you know? Does, do, do many cover Donna Summer songs? You don't hear that. Is that because it's a period piece with disco and such? Yeah, I think it took a long time for disco as much as people thought that it was kind of Okay, it died hard and fast. Music. It did. It did. And it was very racially motivated, you know, with the mm. with the Comiskey Park, uh, you know, with the Disco Sucks, um, burning yeah. up disco albums and singles, um, mostly by white people. It, it was very racially motivated. But now you hear disco all over the radio. That You hear disco in Justin Bieber yeah, and Ariana yeah. Grande and Absolutely. Billie Eilish. Like, that's just disco music. So it took took some time for it to go back and develop into the cool thing that it was. Eric Alper with us, publicist and music commentator, uh, talking about 10 years ago yesterday, Donna, uh, Donna Summer passes away, and Eric was nice enough to whip down to the old site of Studio 54 to do his, uh, his cut-in from there, <laughs> just to grab that atmosphere. You're a true pro, Eric. Thanks so much for the time <laughs> while you're on holiday. We appreciate that. Thanks, man. It's always great to talk to you. We'll talk soon. All right. We're hearing more and more of, uh, you know, the issues around the airport, specifically Pearson, uh, and, and stories of backlog passengers and more and more delays. And, you know, I guess this has been happening for a few weeks when things really started to open up a few weeks ago. And, um, many thought that this would just, you know, growing pains as things get up and running and such. Uh, but now it's getting to the point where people are wondering, like, why hasn't this been dealt with? Why does it only seem to be a problem? Uh, here or is it let's bring in barry Choi, travel expert and is with us now barry thanks for the time i hope you're well i'm good thanks for having me so barry has there been really any progress made on any of this and this seems to be just <laughs> just pearson or is it across the country it's mainly pearson to be realistic uh i flew out of the airport uh, literally last week i had a 7 a.m flight i was flying to the u.s uh, fortunately because i have a nexus card it only took me 20 minutes to get through um, but I had a friend who was on the, by coincidence on the exact same flight. She was traveling with someone without Nexus, and it took them just over two and hours and fifteen minutes to get through. So they lined up at four o'clock for a seven o'clock flight, and they didn't get through to six fifteen. So they barely made their flight. Um, and unfortunately, I'm hearing a lot of stories like that. Um, but just for the listeners, so they're clear, this is mainly affecting people who are traveling to the U.S without Nexus at, at 7 a.m. in the morning for those first flights. You know, I would say the 6 a.m. to the 8 a.m. flights, that's where you're going to run into the most problems. If you're traveling in the afternoon internationally, you'll probably be fine with the regular uh, conditions that we're all used to. So, again, this has something to do just with, you know, people on at certain hours, then, you're saying? You know, it's actually really obvious when you get in line. Like, you know, even in the Nexus line, there was only one security checkpoint. You know, you know when you go through customs or, or security, you know, you got to mm-hmm. take your laptops out 
everyone's got to go through the x-ray, right? So even for Nexus line, there was only one x-ray machine working. So this one line serving everyone else. Um, and then you think about the traditional lines, it's the same idea. They just don't have all the lines open, probably because they don't have enough security. And even when you clear security, you know, the U.S. Customs is famous for not having enough agents on staff. And this was even before the pandemic. So nothing's really changed. It's, it's a bit weird. Um, but, you know, I guess they're like figuring, hey, you know, it's bad in the morning, but throughout the rest of the day, uh, it, it fixes itself. So, you know, obviously it's not the best solution. And, and you know, they don't really feel all our pains, that's for sure. So why does this seem to be just happening at this one location, at this one airport? Well, you know, Toronto is a major international hub when you think about it. You know, people from all over the world are traveling through Toronto to transit through to mm -hmm. get to different parts. Uh, obviously, through the U.S., you know, Toronto is fortunate. Just uh, our geography, it's very easy to get it to every major city. Uh, so it's just really just a population thing. And, you know, Toronto Pearson is the busiest airport in Canada. Uh, you know, even in Vancouver, they've got their own issues. It's not nearly as bad, but that's just because they don't have as many flights. So, so it's really just a math thing when you think about it. So is this just about not having enough staff? And I think we've talked about this before, Barry. Couldn't they not have seen this coming? Or, or <laughs> what, like, why is it taking so long to rectify? You know, it's, that's a very good question. You know, uh, that said, you know, I do think security uh, at the airports is something to be taken very serious, obviously. Yep. Right? So I'm, I'm sure it requires a little bit more training than your typical security guard. Um, but, you know, it's, it's a good question to ask. Like, why is there not more staff? Why isn't there more lanes open? You know, from personal experience, uh, there's definitely fewer lanes open than I've seen before. Uh, um, as far as U.S. Customs is concerned, why isn't there more staff? Well, that's a question we should have been asking for the last five slash ten years, right? Um, they, again, seem to be in no rush to, to improve the lineups there. Um, but it's not just on the way out. You know, on the way back, it's, it's a very confusing thing. I don't know when the last time you've traveled through the airport, but I've never understood why flying back to Canada, there's no separate line for Canadians. You know, every other country I've been to in my entire life, there's a separate line for locals. So anyone who's local can get through super fast. It doesn't exist in Canada for whatever reason, and I, I'll never understand it. Did Could we have seen this coming? I mean, again, we remember looking up in the sky when we wouldn't see any planes <laughs> unless it had UPS on the side or FedEx. And now, you know, if you live uh, you know, close to a flight path, they're going over every 30 seconds. Can we not see this coming? Of course, we could have seen it coming. <laughs> There's no doubt about it. Like, you know, all the airlines are happy to report when their numbers are up. Uh, you know, the airport clearly tracks how many passengers are coming through. Uh, so they know what's going on. Um, and so, so, again, I don't understand whether they're not staffing up uh, or maybe they just don't want to pay the overtime. Who knows, right? Hmm. And governments, the federal government's been taking heat on this. Is there anything federal government can do? It's hard to say because it, what it comes down to is Pearson hiring staff and training them. Uh, so, you know, for all we know, and to be fair to Pearson, a lot of people who worked in, in the industry may have left it during the pandemic, yeah. because like you said, there wasn't that many travelers going through. So they had to, you know, pay their bills. So they probably looked for other jobs. Maybe this is just an industry or, or a place that people don't aren't as interested in working right now. Uh, so to hire new staff and to tra train them does require time. And I don't know how much the government the federal level government can do unless they're willing to, to you know, allocate more funds towards the airports. Um, you know, at the end, this really comes down to economics. And we all know <laughs> where things were before the pandemic and after. And at the end of the day, they're just going to have to open up the wallets and pay these people more <laughs> if they want to fill these spots. And in order to do that, we're all going to see higher fares, aren't we? Well, you know, it's, it's an accurate statement. You know, to retain staff, 
quality stuff in any industry this day, these days is uh, people are expecting to be paid more. Uh, and I, I think that's a fair thing to ask for and, and to expect. So yeah, are our airport fees going to go up? Uh, definitely. It's unfortunately, especially if you're flying out of Pearson, because we have some of the highest airport taxes in the world as it is. You know, you buy an airfare ticket, the base fares $150, and all of a sudden you're paying $300 in fees. You're like, what is going on here? You know what I mean? Uh, so yeah, welfares go up potentially, uh, but fortunately it's spread over millions of passengers from all over the world. So hopefully it doesn't hurt as much. If you're flying, make sure you, uh, as they say, pack the patience and allow for extra time. Barry Choi with us, travel expert. Barry, as always, thanks for the time. Be well. No problem. Have a good one. You're listening to the Hamilton Today podcast from 900 CHML. We've been talking about the information that came out a couple of days ago uh, that Finland and Sweden were both actively looking to join uh, NATO. It was interesting. Uh, our foreign affairs minister, Melanie Jolie, said Canada would be one of the first or wanted to be one of the first to uh, approve of them. Of course, it has to be unanimous consent for anybody to join. And uh, Canada wants to be the first to stand in line and, and, and approve this. Uh, however, we're not so quick to stand in line when it comes to making our commitments to NATO as far as spending, uh, which is interesting. We'll talk about that a little bit later. But certainly, how has this progressed so quickly? And and uh, what does Russia think of all of this? Let's bring in Arl Brown, a professor of international relations, senior member of the Monk School of Global Affairs at the University of Toronto, and is with us now. Arl, thank you for the time. I hope you're well. Thank you. What are your thoughts on how Vladimir Putin is taking this information, considering what happened in Ukraine? You know, there was worries about them joining NATO. How is he taking Finland and Sweden talking about this? He is trying to make the best of it. So he said that uh, he does not view the joining of NATO by these two countries as a threat. But he also added significantly that it would be a different matter if NATO assets were moved closer to Russia's border. So what he's trying to do is is to make the best out of a bad situation where he's trying to limit the kind of commitment that NATO is making to these countries. In other words, he does not want to have permanent bases in Finland or in Sweden. And it's one thing if these two countries decide that they do not want it, for their own political reasons. It's something else that this is dictated by Moscow. So he's trying to get some concessions, but I think uh, the reality is that Russia has lost its veto power over any kind of expansion of NATO. And the president of uh, Finland put it really well uh, when he talked to Vladimir Putin at a uh, press conference afterwards, and he said that he had told Vladimir Putin that you caused this look at the mirror. In other words, uh, your actions are responsible for driving these two Nordic countries that had so desperately tried to have good relations with Russia to be accommodating, and they felt they had no choice in the face of Russia's brazen aggression in Ukraine. Considering this was such a key element of the whole Ukraine invasion, how does this play in in Russia? Um, and, and again, does it uh, does it really matter of, of what they load up into those into those nations now? I mean, the ball is already rolling. But how does this play in Russia when you know you're doing this to stop NATO from encroaching on Russia, and then instead of losing one, you lose two? Uh, there is a great deal of irony here 
that if this was in any way meant to prevent the enlargement of NATO, it wound up precipitating an enlargement of NATO. But of course, uh, I and others have maintained that the real reason why Russia invaded Ukraine was not because of NATO enlargement. Yes, they were not pleased by NATO enlargement, but we know that in 2014, they invaded parts of Ukraine, they mm-hmm. annexed Crimea, it was the European Union. So there is something else, and it is basically about power, about Vladimir Putin staying in power. So when we look at the big picture here, the question is, to what extent will this undermine Vladimir Putin's ability to stay in power? Because this is a blow, but this alone will not do it. But when you see the massive losses that Russia is taking uh, on the battlefield, when you see that the Russian army has lost much of its aura of invincibility, when you see that economic sanctions are beginning to bite, not enough yet, but uh, they are having some effect, the question is whether cumulatively, eventually the population, but most specifically the military and the secret services, will they realize the catastrophic miscalculation of Vladimir Putin? Is this a slam dunk for Sweden and Finland? What do they need to get in? I understand Turkey is not happy about it. NATO lives by the rule of unanimity. It may not have been particularly wise to have that rule, but that is the rule. And Turkey theoretically can block it. And they've said today that they are not in favor. They are not going to go along with it. But we have to understand Erdogan. Erdogan is a dictator himself. Many have suggested that Turkey, under his rule, should not be in NATO because it doesn't meet the criteria of uh, democracy. And the human rights record of Turkey is absolutely horrific. They probably have more journalists in prison on a per capita basis than just about any other country. And they have committed horrible atrocities in Syria, terrible policies of repression against the Kurds. But what Erdogan wants to get is... um, respect from United States is very offended that the Biden administration has not had good relations with him and they don't consult with him. He would like to get statements from the Swedes that they would take tougher actions against Kurds, especially uh, certain groups like the PKK. And I think this is the opening bid. He did oppose Erdogan, the appointment of Jan Stoltenberg to be Secretary General of NATO, and in the end, they worked out a deal. And more than likely, this is what's going to happen. But before that, this could be ugly. There was a report earlier uh, talking about Finland's preparation uh, with not being a member of NATO and in the series of underground bunkers is there, that have been around for years, apparently. Is there anything you can tell us about that? The Finns understand very well what Russian aggression looks like because they were victims of that aggression in 1940 and uh, they fought back eventually they were overwhelmed uh, by massive soviet forces after having inflicted terrible losses on uh, stalin's uh, army and uh, uh, after the second world war they had to give up something like 10 percent of their territory and there was a kind of uh, uh, restriction on Finnish sovereignty, it was known as Finlandization, where various governments had to be very, very keenly aware of Soviet sensitivities to the point where 
they would even ban certain movies like uh, the movie One, Two, Three with Jimmy Cagney because that was deemed to be offensive by Moscow. Hmm. So they certainly do not want to go back to that. They have long prepared for a possible Russian uh, uh, attack. They do appreciate that they cannot uh, withstand an attack by themselves, that being part of NATO is essential. They have cooperated increasingly with NATO. They have decided to buy F-35 fighter planes, which are really part of a system that is integrated within NATO. And they have a very strong army for a country that is that small. So they've been doing all the right uh, things. The Swedes, however, lulled themselves into a false sense of security. They uh, um, cut down on their armed forces by something like 70%. They basically gave up anti-submarine warfare. Now they're scrambling to get those capacities back. Oh, man, it's uh, it continues. Finland and Sweden both talking about joining NATO are on their way to doing so. Oral Brown with us, Professor of International Relations and Senior Member of the Monk School of Global Affairs at the University of Toronto. Oral, as always, thank you so much for the time. Be well. Thank you. If Scott Thompson isn't satisfied with an answer, he'll delve into the issue until he is. You're listening to Hamilton Today with Scott Thompson. On Hamilton's News, today's talk. 900 CHML. Here we are. The election uh, campaign is in full swing. Of course, the big election coming up uh, June 2nd. Uh, understand that uh, now advanced polls are opening up to get a, uh, a, a update on what's going on and what's been happening on the campaign trail as the leaders spread out. Colin DeMello is with us. Queen's Park bureau chief for global news he is with us now colin thanks for the time hope you're well good afternoon i'm doing well thanks so uh colin obviously the leader spreading out after the debate across the country anything new any breakthroughs uh on the campaign trail today no, no real breakthroughs. In fact, if you're taking a look at the polling, I mean, a lot of the polling has been pretty static for the last number of uh, days or weeks. The progressive conservatives still have a hold on their lead. Uh, it depends. Some polls put them at, you know, the 40s. Some polls put them in the high mid to high 30s. And the liberal and the NDP are firmly in second place fighting for who's going to be first in second. Um, and they're in the mid 20s range. Uh, the Green Party, you know, gaining a just maybe a touch of steam coming off of that really good uh, outstanding uh, debate performance from Mike Schreiner but for the most part it looks like we're still you know steamrolling ahead to a progressive conservative majority government potentially normally uh, in elections it's the opposition parties that are, are pouncing on the incumbent uh, obviously there they have the the favor in in that respect however we're seeing a lot of the fight for second place and the NDP and the liberals going at each other this time out that's exactly it. There there may have been some kind of calculus here that, you know, the progressive conservatives have such a huge lead uh, that now they need to start picking off at one another if they have any shot at, you know, maybe even taking on Doug Ford or if not being the official opposition leader. That's really what we're seeing. I asked both the leader of the NDP and the leader of the uh, uh, the liberals you know, do you realistically think that come June 2nd, you can form a majority government? And both the leader of the NDP and the liberals said to me, yes, they do. They both think that they can form a majority government, even though the polls are telling a completely different story. So I think 
you have to kind of take a look at it from that 5,000 foot view. What realistically can they accomplish here? Um, are they able to, this late in the race, start picking off a few progressive conservatives? Chances are maybe one or two, but you know, not a lot of them. And so you have to start looking at, okay, well, what are they, what is the next objective? And for them, it's trying to get as many seats as possible to be as much of a threat as possible. Uh, and, and that means for the NDP, trying to get liberals over to their side for the liberals trying to get NDP uh, voters over to their side. It's going to be fascinating to see if NDP can hang on to uh, the opposition party status. Now, advanced polls are opening up, Colin. So how does that change the landscape? So the advanced polls this year are going to be the longest because of COVID-19. They're actually going to be open for 10 days, uh, which gives voters just a lot of time to start trickling into the polls. And that's what Elections Ontario wants to see, that slow trickle rather than a gush on the day of the um, actual election. Uh, what you're going to be seeing over the next few days is the campaigns really making an effort to, you know, if they've identified who their voters are, getting those voters to the actual polls themselves. That'll be job number one because you know it's great to have support in the polls but if those people don't show up at the ballot box all of that work was for naught secondly you're going to start seeing the attacks start to come into you know more sharpened focus because this is the time now where people are actually thinking about going to the ballot box now they might be thinking to themselves okay well i've been sitting on the sidelines who am i actually going to vote for and for those who are you know set in the progressive conservative camp there's very little swaying them. It's the liberals and the NDP who might be those swing voters between the parties. And, and, and so you might see a lot more rhetoric coming out of both the liberals and the NDP as they try to help define their vote for, to their voters who really is the Doug Ford challenger in this race. You bring up an interesting point, Colin, and that about low voter turnout. I mean, everybody's just fried now after this, uh, you know, uh, global pandemic and such. And now we're hit with an election campaign. And, and we know this is all part of the schedule and such. But it'll be interesting to see what the turnout is like this election. Well, you also have to think about, you know, just the, the, the state of things on, on June 2nd. You can you can go to a bar and you could go to a patio. You could go have a barbecue with a family member. You could, uh, you know, spend time just in a park or a playground doing all kinds of things that we weren't allowed to do during the pandemic. You know, this is really one of the first summers in, in a couple of years that we will be uh, footloose and fancy free. We can do whatever we want. I don't know if people are necessarily thinking about an election campaign. So that might affect voter turnout. The secondly, the second thing is. If people see that the progressive conservatives are going to come out with a majority in these polls anyway, they may say, eh, why bother? My party is going to win. Maybe I don't need to turn out to vote. And the third thing is the indecisiveness of the progressive voter. If they don't know uh, who to choose between, they might not say, ah, I'm just going to skip it this time because hmm. some you know, don't like Andrea Horvath or they don't like Stephen Del Duca. And that indecisiveness might just say, might just lead them to say, I'm going to sit, stay at home. So we could see lower voter turnout this year. Um, and that would be a shame. Colin DeMello with us, Queens Park Bureau Chief for Global News. Make sure you're watching Global Tonight for more on all of this. Colin, as always, thanks so much for the time. Be well. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. You're listening to the Hamilton Today podcast from 900 CHML. Well, I don't know if you want to hear this, but inflation up 6.8%. That is uh, a new three-decade uh, high, new three-decade high, 6.8%. And if you've gone to the grocery store or tried to buy gas or any of that stuff, uh, you certainly know that uh, that's what we're talking about. Also, uh, gas price is going to go down by a few cents, it appears, uh, around Thursday, and then 
head back up as we head towards uh, the weekend. So there you go. All right. Uh, a vigil will be held tonight out in front of Hamilton City Hall to show support and remembrance for the victims of Russia's invasion in Ukraine. Uh, the vigil organized collaboratively by the Ukrainian Canadian Congress and the Hamilton Jewish Federation and the Canadian Polish Congress uh, uh, begins at 7 o'clock at Hamilton City Hall. To talk about all of this, uh, Mary Aholodik is with us, Vice President of the Ukrainian Canadian Congress, Hamilton Branch, and is with us now. Mary, thank you for the time. I hope you're well. Mary, are you there? Yes, I am. Mary, thanks for taking the time. We greatly appreciate this. What can you tell us about the vigil tonight that starts at 7 o'clock at City Hall? Well, uh, it, like you said, yeah, like you mentioned earlier, it's been organized by the uh, Hamilton Jewish Federation and the Canadian Polish Congress, um, uh, Polish Canadian Congress, uh, along with uh, um, the Ukrainian Canadian uh, Congress in Hamilton. And uh, it's it's basically uh, a peace uh, rally uh, to show support for Ukraine uh, in in a peaceful way, um, uh, w- with uh, candles, and there'll be a short program. So um, that that's basically what it is. And who will be speaking at this? You know, uh, I'm I'm not sure. The program is short. Um, it, it basically um, will probably just um, have a, a few speakers uh, talking about uh, support for Ukraine and uh, maybe a couple of poems. I know that one person will be reading um, a poem by Taras Shochanko, uh, which is a, a, a great poet uh, from Ukraine. And uh, the piece is called Zapovid, or um, in English it would be Commandment. Um, something of that nature. It'll be read in English, and it talks about, um, uh, you know, uh, missing your country, um, hoping that you'll come back one day, hmm. um, that, that sort of thing. Uh, here we are, day 83 uh, of, this, uh, of this invasion. What are you hearing from those in the community that have family there, that have fled or, or still there in some way? You know, because obviously, uh, you know, 83 days into this, uh, many, you know, thought it would be or could be over in, in as little as, as a week. And, and here the great uh, uh, resistance from Ukraine has, has managed to keep this power at bay. What are you hearing from members that are still talking to, to people that are there? Well, the, the people who are living through this uh, are not having the best time. Even, um, you know, in uh, uh, cities that are close to the Polish border, um, they have, uh, like Lviv, for instance, they have had uh, explosions there. Um, they hear sirens all the time because, um, you know, uh, there is shelling um, uh, not far away from there. So um, they're, they're fearful, but they're trying to stay positive and, and keep their, their normal lives um, going. Uh, but a lot of people have left, and uh, they've left everything behind, businesses and, uh, you know, other families who refused to go, uh, saying, you know, we're staying, this is our country, um, you know, that kind of thing. It, it's, not a, it's not the best situation because you're always, it's tense uh, at the best of times, um, 
even even in the western regions where uh, you know it's still sort of quiet. Um, Is they're mistrustful. Um, you know, um, they've been under. You know, it's only thirty years since uh, you know they declared Ukraine declared independence since the Soviet Union fell apart, and uh, it's it's. They were just getting going, you know, as a country, mm. you know, getting to know themselves. And and um, it, it's uh, sad that, uh, um, you know, the, it, you know, all of that progress is being curtailed by an invader, by an occupier. So we've heard that, you know, millions upon millions have had to flee. And, and obviously, Ukrainians don't want to co- go somewhere else. They want to go back home. But we understand right. a, a certain amount of them have fled to neighboring countries or even here. Any any news on any any Ukrainians that have arrived in Hamilton? Well, we, we had some news. It's uh, they're, um, they're arriving on their own, um, I should say, uh, on their own ticket because uh, mm-hmm. um so uh, the, the ones who have come here, a lot of them have come. They've been sponsored by someone. Uh, right. They have family here. Um, or they have chosen to come to this area for industry or for jobs or, or what have you. But they're basically um, uh, coming on their own um, merit. Um, so uh, a lot of the programs that are that are open to... Um, refugees in general they don't fit into that category although mm. the you know the ontario government and the federal government are trying to put uh, um you know some help uh, for them uh together it's slow and uh, so you know basically um like the city of hamilton has been very good in um organizing um uh help centers for um, you know, how to get your uh, social insurance number for housing, for employment. Um, the Ukrainian Canadian Social Services as well um, uh, have been uh, helping people with uh, aid. The Ukrainian Congress uh, here where um, uh, uh, packages were sent out uh, to Ukraine um, by plane and um, uh, they're collecting uh, medical supplies and um uh, planning to open up a, a storefront where people who don't have, um, say, furniture for their house or clothing for their kids and things like that um, mm. will be able to um, access um, that. So everybody, the whole community here in Hamilton has been working uh, together, doing the best they can. And a vigil will be held tonight out in front of Hamilton City Hall to show support and remembrance for victims of the Russian war in Ukraine, the Russian invasion. Yes. Uh, the vigil organized collaboratively by the Ukrainian-Canadian Congress and the Hamilton Jewish Federation and the Canadian-Polish Congress. It all begins at 7 p.m. Mary Holodick's been with us, President, sorry, Vice President of the Ukrainian-Canadian yes. Congress, Hamilton Branch. Mary, thanks so much for this. Be well. Oh, Good luck. All right, we've been talking a lot, especially during this election campaign, uh, in regard to housing and affordability and energy prices. And now a new report by Generation Squeeze finds that housing affordability has eroded at a rate not seen in a half a century over the course of this global pandemic. To talk more about all of this, Dr. Paul Kershaw is with us, Associate Professor at the University of British Columbia and founder of Generation Squeeze and is with us now. Paul, thank you for the time. I hope you're well. I am. Thank you. Uh, Tell us about Generation Squeeze. What is it? 
Well, Gen Squeeze is a force for intergenerational fairness. We're a university collaboration that is a small but mighty force in the world of politics, trying to make sure that we make our cities, provinces, and country work for all generations. And housing happens to be one of those issues which is really creating tensions between generations. We often focus about how a place like Hamilton, over the last couple of years, for instance, has now emerged as the most expensive, most unaffordable place in the country, save for Vancouver and Toronto. Um, but we don't simultaneously say, why do we tolerate that? Why has that been tolerated in Hamilton and the Burlington area? And that's in no small part because your housing market has made existing homeowners wealthier and wealthier year over year in ways that we get accustomed to and kind of start to take for granted. And so that's the tension that Gen Squeeze is trying to draw attention to at this moment with this report. Is Gen, is, is Gen Squeeze pointing fingers at the boomers or are they pointing it at the politicians who for the last 5, 10, 15, 20 years have refused to build anything? Because this is really a supply issue. It's, uh, it's partly a supply issue, um, but I think it is broader than the supply uh, issue, the supply on its own. I think that there are a range of things that we need to do. Building more homes is absolutely one of them. Building more of the right homes. Are we building more rental? Are we building enough? Are we building homes with enough bedrooms for families with kids? Um, are we building enough homes that are actually coming in at price points that are in reach for what the local economy is paying in Hamilton? So those are key parts on the... Uh, the supply side, but to what degree are you ruling out in, in Hamilton how people buy homes and leave them empty or people from abroad purchasing homes? Uh, and not we've talked about this at quite, we've talked about this at quite extent, Paul. And, and, you know, even whether it's foreign ownership, people coming in and buying uh, homes, it certainly is. We've seen in Vancouver how it's affected the price of homes out there and people, you know, as you said, speculating and, and buying properties. But really, that's not the major issue his, here. The the major issue here is for the last 5, 10, 15, 20 years, it's impossible to get anything built to the point where now in an Ontario election, all three main political parties are talking about building 1.5 million homes in the next uh, 10 years. It, it, so that suggests that we've been sitting on our hands for the last 5, 10, 15, 20 years and not getting anything built. And now we're paying the price. Well, I suspect that if you were like the conservative premier right now, Premier Ford would say, hey, I've got more housing starts going in the last while than you know we have seen in the last 30 years. It's one of his main talking points. Yeah, I'm not here to say that supply doesn't matter. I'm absolutely here to say we need to build more supply. We need to overcome nimbyism that prevents. But when was the last time you heard, Paul, all three major political parties say build, build, build? Because I remember when Dalton McGinty got elected and he said, we're not interested in building any more infrastructure anymore. He didn't say housing. He was referring more to roads and such. But again, this is all lack of we're, we're at an infrastructure deficit here in Ontario. You're at an infrastructure deficit, but you know what will be even more interesting than all parties agreeing you need 1.5 million more homes in the next decade? Is will all party leaders say we don't want home prices to rise over the next decade? And that's what you don't have consensus on right now. You don't have political party leaders saying, what do we want from housing going forward? Do we want home prices to stall and we're going to grow our, our economies in different ways so that earnings have a chance to catch up? And the reason you don't have political leaders saying as much is because that the price increases that you're, we were talking about, they're not uniformly bad. They're bad for someone who hasn't got into the housing market, but they are so, great for homeowners. So 
So what's the solution here, Paul, uh, in order to get, you know, people into their first home? I mean, obviously, we've just talked about building, but what else what else can we do? I mean, you know, we've heard of parties talk about rent control and what have you. And I'm old enough to remember rent control here in Ontario in the 70s uh, and what happened then. And what it really did was it, it drastic. They didn't they stopped building apartment buildings and people started building condos and becoming their own landlords. So how much do we you know, can we control uh, the price of a home through government as opposed to simple supply and demand? So we definitely need on the supply side as we're building those 1.5 million homes over the next decade that we have to have a priority given to purpose-built rental. So to what degree do your platforms feature the language of rental? And there are significant differences between the platforms on that front. I think more importantly though, this really isn't a policy problem. There are a range of issues we can do on zoning. We can tackle that, we can add more density, we can tackle some of the harmful kinds of demand. But the question is, do you have members of the Hamilton Burlington area and members of Ontario more generally open to saying that you want home prices to stall? We've done some polling that shows two thirds of Ontarians agree with the following. To restore affordability for all, we need home prices to minimally stall and for years so that earnings can catch up. Two-thirds of Ontarians say they support that idea. We don't have political parties right now, though, chasing that as a strategy to win the election. And I think that reflects a broader addiction to high and rising home prices that needs to be broken in Ontario and across the country. But, Paul, again, I'm old enough to this has been I've been hearing this for 20, 30 years and people have been complaining about urban sprawl, urban sprawl, urban sprawl. And and as a result, we haven't built. So you're talking about infield development. Well, now we have nimbyism and municipalities not willing to do that. So, you know, I think that was the whole idea. If we stop building, they will just fill in the infields. But again, this is not a new problem. This has been going on for an awfully long time. And we just haven't seen that infield development the way everybody talks about and unfortunately we haven't seen the other so uh, again where's where's the balance here and how do we move this forward well i guess now with all three political parties willing to build uh, I, I guess we're now addressing this well we're you're getting progress on the supply side of the equation i think you're also getting some progress where there's increased consensus that you want to tackle like the money laundering and the short-term yeah. rentals and the vacant homes so those are some positive things but I keep coming back to like, you're saying you're old enough to like, we've been talking about this a long time, but we, we have never said in this country, we don't want home prices to rise. So how, you keep saying that, Paul, but what do we do? What are you talking? Let's get, let's get to the brass tacks here. What do you I want people to do? Set, because what I'm hearing here is what I'm hearing here is you people want, you want people to be in a certain type of home and live a certain type of way, or you want some sort of government regulation on the increase of prices, which again, I point to rent control and how that works. So let's get to the brass tacks here. What do we have to do? Well, you have to start by actually having a clear goal. Do we want housing to be a place to call home or do we want it to be an investment strategy? We can't have both. because I think we know that. I think we know what it is, okay. though. We know it's homes. Okay. So if that's the case, then we need the parties to literally say our goal for housing is for home prices to not go up over the next many years. And we are going to use every policy at our disposal to achieve that. And then we'll start. How to do see you do that? Way. How do you do that? Because that's 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 extreme well, socialism and fixing prices like rent control, which, again, led to the lack of rentals in the condo situation we have now. So but it's not fixing prices. It's to your point. Prices are a reflection of supply and demand. So on the mm -hmm. one hand, as home prices continue to rise, we're not going to celebrate that. We are going to say we don't want that. And what is it going to take to make sure that these stall? 
Simultaneously, we're going to look at what are the range of ways in which we incentivize people to want home prices to rise. We have tax policy that incentivizes people to shelter, you know, shelter their windfalls from principal residences. And so then we think, oh, then my principal residence isn't just a place to go home. It is a great investment strategy. We can go to Statistics Canada and say, you have to start measuring housing inflation properly because you haven't been giving a signal to the Bank of Canada. That so basically what you're saying, Paul, is you're talking about socializing the housing system. I am not in any way, shape or form talking about socializing the housing system. Let me insist for your listeners that they don't take that misinterpretation whatsoever. Housing is delivered by a market where there are supply and demand factors. We need to dial down harmful demand. We need to increase the, and upgrade the right kind of supply and make the market work. But governments and communities set the rules within which markets work. And our zoning prevents adding the right kind of supply in the numbers that we need. And a range of other policies incentivize people to treat our housing as an investment strategy, not just a place to call home. If you don't tackle both of those things simultaneously, which Ontario has not done for the last several years, you're going to turn out to have, wait for it, becoming the province that now has the greatest rate of unaffordability of anywhere in the country. And you saw affordability erode and wealth windfalls and housing gain more in the last two years than at any time in the last half century. That is a reflection of what's going on with public policy as much as anything else. We're going to continue this conversation, Paul. Dr. Paul Kershaw with us, an associate professor, University of British Columbia, founder of Generation Squeeze, talking about housing affordability. Uh, thanks so much, Paul. Be well. My pleasure. Have a great afternoon. You're listening to the Hamilton Today podcast from 900 CHML. All right, advanced polls opening up in some parts of the province, including Hamilton. Uh, and we, we, it looks like we got more options to vote this time uh, to find out everything we need to know about the June 2nd election campaign and how to get, uh, not the campaign, but how to vote. Uh, Joe Langham is with us, manager, media and public engagement with Elections Ontario and with us now. Joe, thanks for the time. I hope you're well. I'm well, thank you. So uh, are there more options for us to vote this year? Are there, more, are there more ways for us to vote this year? Yes, there absolutely are. Um, I'm just going to run through a couple for you. Uh, Go for from it. From now until May the 27th, you can actually um, apply online to vote by mail. Uh, you can already vote by special ballot at your local returning office or satellite office until 6 p.m. on June the 1st. Um, you can vote by advanced voting from tomorrow until May the 28th. Um, and you can also advance vote at your returning office from May the 21st to the 27th. Um, those who want to use assistive voting technology can use that at their returning office from May the 21st to June the 2nd. Um, and there are options also for voting by home visit, um, or this is the last day for our voting while in hospital program. So, wow, that's incredible. Good for you guys. Um, so uh, advanced polls opening up already. And, and you know, I, I started doing this a, a couple of elections ago just for the convenience of it all. Although it is kind of nice to go out and see all your neighbors on uh, on Election Day all lined up and such. But boy, uh, get, having the advanced option really does make it a lot easier, doesn't it? It really does. Um, like a funny anecdote is that, in fact, most Ontarians vote on election day. They do like going out and meeting their neighbors. Um, but this uh, election, we've actually 
uh, put in place 10 days of advanced voting. Uh, last election, it was only five. Um, and that's to allow for those who really don't want to mix with crowds, uh, mm -hmm. even though in a lot of locations, you know, across the province, uh, COVID numbers are down, um, but they don't want to meet, meet up with crowds. And so those 10 days of advanced voting really give people the opportunity of choosing a day and a location that best meets them. Obviously, we've gone two and a half years through a global pandemic, uh, not with a provincial election, but certainly with a federal election. Uh, are you concerned about turnout because of what we've been through or the, the exact opposite, because things are now opening up that, that people will get out and participate? You know, we have been watching elections in other provinces that have happened during the pandemic and obviously the federal election. Um, we're not, you know, noticing in any of those that turnout was particularly down. What we have noticed is that people are voting in different ways. So, you know, they are taking advantage of vote by mail. Uh, they are taking advantage of advanced voting days. They're going to their returning offices and voting even before uh, advanced voting just so they can kind of flatten the curve. How do we find out where we can go for our advanced polling? It's really easy. Uh, some people will have received their voter information card and that will have some information on it. Um, but the best thing I can advise is if you go to the website elections.on.ca, you can search on the website. Either you can just put in your postal code and it will tell you your electoral district and everything you need to know. Or you can actually search by electoral district and that will tell you uh, the address and opening hours for your returning office. If your area has a satellite office, it will give you the same for that. It will tell you all of your advanced voting locations uh, and also their hours, days and hours of operation. Um, and the thing that people should note is this election you can vote at any advanced voting locations in your electoral district. Hmm. So if the advanced voting location near your office is more convenient for you, then you can vote there. You don't have to vote at the advanced voting location that is closest to your home. And Joe, how, when can we expect our voters card? I don't think I've got mine yet. They have. Uh, they started heading out the doors on the 13th, and mm -hmm. most people should have theirs by the 20th. Okay, perfect. All right. So lots of ways to vote this year, but get out and cast your ballot uh, on or by June 2nd. Joe Langham has been with us, Manager of Media and Public Engagement with Elections Ontario, trying to make it smooth as silk for all of us. Joe, thanks so much for the time. Be well. Good luck this year. Thank you very much. Bye-bye. Thanks for listening to the Hamilton Today podcast. You can listen to the show live weekday afternoons from 3 to 6 on 900CHML and online at 900CHML.com. Hi, it's Shauna, and I might be a bad parent because my kids think french fries are vegetables. Hey, it's Ryan, and I might be a bad parent because I went out for wings when my wife was in the hospital after giving birth. Johnny here. I might be a bad parent because in my house, the tooth fairy gives pocket change. But we're not alone. Len emailed us and said his six-year-old daughter's Tarzan moment going from love seat to lazy boy by curtains made him more proud than any dance <laughs> recital. And Andy left his two-year-old at the rink. All right, guys, I'm sure we're not alone, like Andy's kid. For stories and confessions like this, make sure you check out our podcast. It's called Bad Parents, and it's available wherever you get your podcasts. I left a glove at the rink.